Last week, I opened my sermon by making the case that we are all together on a journey, a journey between two trees. We're on a journey from the tree of God's blessing to the tree of God's promise, a promise of a life of joy and peace. Using the call of the first disciples in Matthew as a template of sorts, I made the case that the most important thing as we make our way along this path, this journey, the most important thing we encounter are the people that we find with us on the path. The people on the path are God's greatest gift to us, for in them we find both our purpose to love and our place, our home. People are the most important thing which, if we're honest this morning, is a bit of a mixed blessing. I mean, there's people everywhere, which is great news, but people are people, so why should it be that you and I should get along, anyone, so awfully? Thank you for singing along. People are everywhere, but people aren't easy to love. It's just the way it is. Relationships are not like that Pepsi commercial that came out last April when Kendall Jenner brought together police and protesters by handing them a cool can of Pepsi. Relationships don't work that way. Relationships with other people, family or friends, or even strangers, are messy and hard. They're full of ambiguity, misunderstandings, and conflict. And yet, it's to people, to relationships, that we as Christians, people of all faith really, are called. So then, the question we must ask ourselves is, what do we do? In relation, if relationships really are the key to experiencing this life of joy and peace that we're all promised, how do we stay on the path when it can be so hard to love people? More on that in a minute, but first I want to talk a little baseball. I know it's a horrible segue, go with it. This past week, our beloved team, if you, haven't, weren't, if you were in a hole and weren't reading the paper, our beloved baseball team managed to win 22 games in a row, breaking the American League record of consecutive wins. I don't care if you're a serious baseball fan or a casual baseball fan. I hope you enjoyed the past three weeks because what we saw was baseball history. It will never happen again in most of our lifetimes. 22 wins in a row is an amazing feat for any team in any sport, but especially baseball, when so many things can go wrong in any given game. And while the players on the field definitely deserve a lot of credit for the success, I don't think we can undervalue the performance of Tito Francona, the manager of the team. If you have a chance this week, go online and Google some of the press conferences, the post-game press conferences following the team's wins. Watch Francona talk with the press. It is a masterclass on controlling the narrative. As the team got closer and closer to breaking the record, the national media, as they often do with Cleveland sports teams, began to speculate of what would go wrong, right? How long would the streak last? Would the streak actually make them less effective in the playoffs? Would the stress of winning game after game make them less effective when they sought the World Series crown? Wins and losses and the team's future prospects were the topics of conversations among the media. But Francona, the manager, was having a very different kind of conversation with his players, I know, but also with anyone who was willing to listen. Over and over again, throughout the streak, in his post-game press conference, he would keep saying things like, his team was playing the right way. 
And it, it was their commitment, in fact, to this playing the game the right way that he was most proud of, that he found most meaningful in the streak. He didn't really celebrate the wins. He celebrated the way his team approached the game. I know it's cliche, but sometimes cliches are true, but it really isn't about wins and losses. It's about how you approach things, how you play the game, if you play the game the right way. And in baseball, playing the game the right way means playing together as a team and taking it one game, one at bat, one pitch at a time. It means picking each other up if someone strikes out with the bases loaded or someone gives up a home run. Playing the right way, playing together as a team means respecting your opponents as much as you do your own teammates and not forgetting to have a little fun along the way. Playing the right way means taking seriously both the unwritten and written rules of the game. I've come to believe that one of the fundamental challenges to living a life of faith, this is a challenge both for individuals but also for churches that seek to be relevant, one of the challenges we face as people of faith in the 21st century is our obsession with individuality. We see everything through the lens of the individual, the self, self-care, self-needs. What do I want? What do I need? Even ads online are catered to your previous searches. I bought a tent. I keep seeing tents Every time I'm on Facebook, I don't need another. But it's all about me online. And the more online you are, the more about you it becomes. We are obsessed with the individual. In fact, let's try a little experiment. I tried this at 8.30. I want you to close your eyes for a second. I'm going to say a phrase, and I want you to hold for a moment the first image that comes to your mind when I utter this phrase. So close your eyes. Here's the phrase. Spiritual journey. Okay, open your eyes. I'm going to guess that most of you, if not all of you, imagined an individual person walking a journey of faith along a solitary path, alone. When I said spiritual journey, you went to a place of personal experience, of personal journey, of an individual's quest to find God or love others. And that's okay. That has its place. But when we hear those words, spiritual journey, so few of us, too few of us, imagine a large collective, a body of people, a church, a family, journeying together down a wide path, a wide path, where others can join in. We, we don't see spiritual journeys as a collective experience, and yet that is how the disciples in the early church would have understood the path they were on. For them to walk the path of faith was to walk the path with other people. For them, there was no spiritual life experienced and lived in isolation from others. They knew you can't play the game alone. Back to baseball real quick. More than any sport, I think one of the reasons we like baseball, despite the fact it takes forever, is there's this tension in the game between the needs and the focus on the individual. It's one of the few sports where you actually can stop and look at someone's face. And the needs of the collective, the team. So much of the game is focused on individual matchups, mano y mano, and individual stats, where two individuals face off while the rest of the team stands there still. Football and basketball, there's movement happening all the time, but in baseball, you get paid to stand there for hours at a time. It's the focus on the individual matchups that make baseball interesting. Of course, in a game centered on individuals, on statistics, on matchups, 
if those individuals don't play together as a team, if they don't trust each other, work together, and communicate well, the whole thing falls apart. That's one of the things that's so great about the Indians right now. They're, they're working together as a team, despite the fact so many all-stars are hurt or injured. Now, like baseball players, we, as people of faith, have both written and unwritten rules that I believe guide us as we try to live in that tension between our individual needs and the needs of the community and the collective. We also struggle with being part of something bigger than ourselves. And the guidelines, the rules we have, are called the law of God. Now, when a pastor normally says the law of God, we begin to feel anxious. Our heart rate increases. We feel anxious or afraid because we've been taught, directly or indirectly, that the law of God is punitive. It's a punishment, something to keep us in line. And I get that. Much of church history, the church, I will apologize on behalf of the church, we have made the law of God about guilt and shame and deciding who's good and who is not, who's in and who is out. But today I want to help you, invite you to see the law of God in a new, fresh way that I think will revive it a bit and help you use it more in your life of faith. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This line might just be one of the more confusing things Jesus ever says out loud. And it's a sentence I think we have to unpack this morning if we want to figure out how to see the law of God in a new, fresh way as more than just a list of rules meant to keep us in line. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two popular interpretations of this passage. The first says that Jesus is trying to give us hope by trolling the scribes and Pharisees. You want to enter my kingdom, he says? Ah, all you have to do is be better than those people, those scribes and Pharisees, those hypocrites that say one thing and do another. That's all it takes. Just be a little bit better than them. That's a possible interpretation, but that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. The other popular take is that What he's doing here is raising the bar so incredibly high that nobody can reach it. None of us can reach it, and so we become aware of our need for God's mercy and grace. This is possible, but that makes Jesus sound pretty passive-aggressive. It's not who he is. I want to offer a third way of understanding these words, unless your righteousness Righteousness exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's start, though, at the the end of the sentence and work our way back to the beginning by looking at this kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks so much about. You've heard me say a lot. You're going to hear me say a lot. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, he loves to say. Turn around. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is not about the afterlife primarily. It's about mostly life here on earth, which means when he says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about here and now. If you want to experience the life of joy and peace that's promised, that's possible, it can happen now. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never find the life of joy and peace you so desperately seek. So who are then these scribes and Pharisees? Well, in short, they are Jews in that time whose sole purpose 
was the study and interpretation of the law. They knew the law backwards and forwards, but Jesus had such a hard time with them throughout the Gospels because their particular interpretation of the law disrupts the primary relationships in their lives. They are scribes and Pharisees. They serve the people, and they've used the law not to build up relationships, but to tear them down, not to lift people up, but to burden them. And he's not very happy about it. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, of the teachers who use the law to weigh you down, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So one more phrase. Unless your righteousness. I'll speak for myself. I don't feel all that righteous. (laughs) I don't know about you, but seven days in a week, I mess up about nine days. I try, I strive, and I struggle, but I, I, I fail more than I succeed. I think part of the reason we get hung up on that is normally when we hear the word righteousness, we think about right living. Righteous people follow the rules. Righteous people do more good than bad. Righteous people have it figured it out. A righteous person does more right than wrong. And this makes sense. I understand it. It's a, it's a valid interpretation, but it, I don't think it makes sense given what we know about Jesus and where he's going and where he comes from. There's this thing called the cross that gives us forgiveness for all of our sins. So here's my offer to you. From now on, when you hear the word righteousness, I want you to replace it to hear in your mind right relationship. Righteous people are in right relationship with one another and with God. Unless you do far better than the scribes and Pharisees in your relationships, you will never find the life of joy and peace you so desperately desperately seek, a life that is available to you here and now. The key then to experiencing the life we all want is not spiritual success or a morality that would impress the Pope. It's a commitment to the people, to the relationships that define our lives. It's a commitment to playing the game the right way with everyone we encounter on the path. Which takes us back to the laws of God written on those tablets of stone centuries ago. If you look closely at the Ten Commandments, you will notice they all draw us back into relationship. Each of those rules draws us back into the relationship either with God or with the people around us. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder. These are all about how we treat one another. Worship God, keep the Sabbath, don't use the Lord's name in vain. These are all about our relationship with God. Honor your father and your mother, don't commit adultery. These are about how we treat and respect family. These rules written on tablets of stone are not meant to be thrown around to cause hurt or to stir up guilt or shame, they are meant to be used as guides, as posts, as markers along the path. For whenever we take these laws written on stone and place them along our path, the same rules that are often used to shame people or control them become words of encouragement and hope that draw us back, nudge us inward, back into right relationships with the people who are walking with us along the way. The law of God draws us back into relationships, and relationships are what save us. The purpose here is not to be righteous. 
is to be in right relationship. So I'll speak from my experience. I can't always stir up feelings of love for people I meet. I have a reservoir of passion and love, and it's usually pretty low. (laughs) Three kids, a wife, family all around the country. I'm trying. Feelings of love are hard to stir up sometimes. They come and go. But I have found something amazing. That when I focus on one day at a time, one relationship at a time, one moment at a time, one game at a time, one pitch at a time, and try my best in that moment, at that second, with that person to play the game the right way, I discover something, this joy and peace that are not contingent upon the results or the outcomes. There is a simple pleasure derived from trying to do the right thing and from seeing myself, ourselves, as part of something bigger than just who we are. We are not meant to walk alone. This past summer, I coached my son's Little League baseball team, 9- and 10-year-olds. We lost every game but one. We won the first game 12-5. to The next 15 games, we didn't score five runs. It was awesome. (laughs) Actually, it was pretty painful. But I will say that I have never been prouder of a group of kids. And I've taught school and coached many teams, but that team in particular holds a special place in my heart. Because it didn't matter how bad they lost, or how how often they lost, or how good they were at losing. Through it all, they kept cheering each other on. Coaches would walk over and say, your guys are so nice to each other. What do you do? They would cheer other teams on when they hit home runs. Nice hit! (laughs) Through all their struggles, they had faith in each other. They didn't lose the joy of the game. I mean, they had more fun than any team in that league. And in fact, the last game where we didn't score a run, it's awesome, parent after parent approached me and the kids saying, this is the best experience my kids have ever had in organized sports. Those are from parents on a team that went 1-15. and 15. Forty years from now, when Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez and Corey Kluber are old, er, <laughs> and looking back at this time, at this 22-game win streak, I don't think they're going to miss the wins. I think what they're going to miss is the family, the community, the camaraderie, the connection with those men that they played the game with each and every day. And they're going to miss them because they played the game the right way. They formed connections not based on blood or nation of origin or even language. They played the game the right way together and had a lot of fun. And that's what they're going to miss. As you came into worship today, you might have grabbed, hopefully you grabbed a rock from one of the baskets. You can raise your hand now. Some ushers will bring some to you, or you can get up and get some yourself if you need them. But what I want you to do on these stones is I want you to imagine, again, we think the spiritual journey is a narrow path. I want you to imagine it broader. And I want you to imagine that you help build that path out in the world. So I want you to take those stones, there's Sharpies in your pew, write a word of hope or a sentence of encouragement a word of hope and a sentence of encouragement with somebody else who's making the journey. And then later this week, I want you to place that stone somewhere where somebody else is going to find it. Let's build a path that's wider than just this pew, that is wide enough to include all kinds of people who are trying to make a way. So write a word of hope, encouragement, 
and then place that stone somewhere in the world where folks will see it, pick it up, and find hope for their journey. I'll give you a few minutes, and then we'll continue with worship. Thank you.